Good morning. It is a state of emergency in parts of the Northeast as remnants of Hurricane Ida caused flash flooding and tornadoes. The question is, are these weather events the new normal? Plus, the Supreme Court refuses to block a controversial Texas law banning abortions at six weeks. But with the law facing several challenges, the question is, what is next in this legal fight? And a new warning about extremists preparing for a rally at the U.S. Capitol later this month. The question is, how are federal officials and police preparing? It is way too early for this. Hey, everybody. Good morning again and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that knows some of the fire crews here in California that could use a lot of that East Coast rain. I'm Jacob Soboroff on this Thursday, September 2nd. We are going to start right now with the news. The remnants of Hurricane Ida are hitting the Northeast this morning with reports of flash flooding and tornadoes in New York, New Jersey and Philadelphia. Late last night, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy both declared states of emergency, calling on residents to stay inside. Fire and rescue crews across the region have responded to numerous water rescues and evacuations because of the high water levels. There have been at least five weather-related fatalities, four in New York City and one in Passaic, New Jersey. The National Weather Service issued a flash flood emergency inside New York City for the first time ever last night. More than three inches of rain were recorded falling in Central Park within one hour, and that shattered a record that was set just last week. This is video right now of water rushing into an apartment on East 22nd Street in Manhattan. Most subway lines were suspended last night due to the heavy rain and that flooding. A number of funnel clouds and tornadoes have also been reported all across the region. I want to go right now to meteorologist Bill Cairns for the forecast. Bill, this is, I mean, I would say it's unbelievable, um, but we're seeing it with our own eyes. It was absolutely incredible. And there's still damage being done now. There's still water flowing into streams, which then flow into rivers. Uh, we got some rivers that are that have already broken all-time records uh, that have long period of record. Um, this event is, you know, really never seen. I mean, 1999, when Hurricane Floyd came through the region, was kind of the flood of record. And a lot of these water levels challenged that. In some cases beat it. Some cases were just underneath it. So not something you see often. Uh, this was 4th Avenue. I used to catch the subway uh, when I lived in Park Slope here, and uh, I saw flooding occasionally on 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, but never like this. This is the road that the New York City Marathon goes down when you're watching it go through Brooklyn. Um, it's kind of a low spot, and all the water from Park Slope up in the hill slides down, and that's pretty incredible. The uh, R subway line travels right underneath that, and I'm sure that was flooded, and yeah, you can see the geyser that was uh, coming out of one of the subways. Uh, just an incredible amount of water in a short short, short period of time. Um, and, and on top of all this, the, the tornadoes that we saw were just, you know, for New Jersey. I mean, Annapolis got hit by a tornado. The Mullica Hill area outside Philadelphia had what we call a wedge tornado, something that you typically would only see like, you know, in the Midwest or the Southeast. And this is the one that went through Annapolis. This was one of the first big weather events yesterday. Um, there was a dam that burst. Uh, the town of uh, Whitmore is flood, uh, flooded. I mean, there's just so many things. I mean, this is the Mullica Hill one. This was the wedge tornado that went through uh, right before, you know, this was right around 5 to about 6 o'clock, right before sunset. I mean, that in itself would be like a, a huge headline-breaking story all by itself. And just let me show you just some of the statistics here. Uh, Newark, with this storm, 
had 8.44 inches of rain. Central Park had over seven inches of rain. And it wasn't like this was an isolated, I mean, York had over six and a half inches of rain. I mean, this wasn't like an isolated event. This was widespread from eastern Pennsylvania through New Jersey, through New York, into Connecticut. And it's still raining in areas out in Boston and Cape Cod. So in one hour, New York, Newark had 3.24. That was the most ever recorded in a single hour. New York City, which has a period of record that goes back about 170 years, had 3.15. Both was the most they'd ever seen in one single hour. And as far as six-hour totals, Newark was almost eight inches, and New York was almost 6.63. Jacob, to put this in perspective, statistically, the statisticians are telling us this was a, about a one-in-a-500-year rainfall event. So what that means is that going into every single year, the odds of this occurring was 0.2. Um, it, it was It's crazy. I was out around my town until about 1 a.m. last night. The firefighters were rescuing people. Uh, it's just so widespread, the devastation and destruction out there. We've only begun to see a little of it. I was going to ask you, Bill, just real quick, what was it like? What was it like to actually experience the first time you so often are talking about this stuff, but you found yourself in the middle of it last night? I mean, I sat in my house for about three hours, no TV on, just listening to the rain pelting, the flashes of lightning out there. The intensity of the rain for that three to four hour period was like nothing I've ever seen before. It's like the worst thunderstorm you know, usually lasts 15, 30 minutes. This lasted like three to four hours and it just would not stop. Um, you know, there's just so many people that are, you know, have damage to homes, basements flooded. There's going to be thousands upon thousands of cars that got flooded out on highways or at low, loca- low spots. Um, this is what happens when you have a flash flood emergency for 9 million people. I mean, typically a flash flood emergency happens for a small town, you know, in the mountains somewhere. This is never, never anything like this has happened before. Very, very scary stuff. Bill Cairns, thank you. I'm glad you're all right. Thinking of all my friends back on the East Coast. And we're going to get updates from Bill on Morning Joe uh, as well. But meanwhile, President Biden will travel to New Orleans tomorrow to survey damage caused by Hurricane Ida there. The White House says the president will meet with state and local leaders from hard hit areas to discuss the recovery effort. No additional details about the schedule have been released yet. Ida made landfall on Sunday as a Category 4 hurricane. At least six people have died due to the storm, and officials say that number is likely to rise. Turning to Afghanistan now, where a senior State Department official says the majority of special immigrant visa applicants are still in the country. In a briefing with reporters yesterday, the official said in part, quote, everybody is haunted by the choices we had to make, and there were really some painful trade-offs. Eligible Afghan citizens are reportedly receiving few details regarding future evacuation plans, even as the State Department pledges to continue its efforts. In an email obtained by NBC News, the department told some Afghans on Tuesday, in part, quote, Our commitment to the people in Afghanistan is enduring. We will use every diplomatic, economic, political and assistance tool at our disposal to ensure the Taliban honors its commitments to uphold the basic rights of all Afghans and support continued humanitarian access to the country. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark Milley, says he shares the pain and anger, those are his words, and mixed emotions of many in the military after the U.S. completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. You ask me where my pain and anger comes from. I have all those same emotions, and I'm sure the secretary does, and any, anyone who served. Uh, and, and I commanded troops, um, and I wasn't born a four-star general. 
Uh, I have walked the patrols and been blown up and shot at and RPG'd and everything else. Uh, my pain and anger comes from uh, the same as the grieving families, the same as those soldiers that are on the ground. Last night I visited the wounded up in Walter Reed. Um, this is tough stuff. War is hard. Uh, it's vicious. It's brutal. It's unforgiving. Uh, and yes, we all have pain and anger. And when we see what has unfolded over the last 20 years and over the last 20 days, that creates pain and anger. Uh, and mine comes from 242 of my soldiers killed in action over 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, yeah, I have that. But I'm a professional soldier. I'm going to contain my uh, pain and anger and continue to execute my mission. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, turning now to Congress, where Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is dismissing calls from some members of his own party to impeach President Biden. Well, look, the, uh, the president's not going to be removed from office. If the Democratic House, narrowly Democratic Senate, that, that's not going to happen. In this country, the report card you get is every two years. So I think the way these behaviors get adjusted in this country is through the ballot box. Last week, a handful of Republicans, including Senators Lindsey Graham and Josh Hawley, called for President Biden to be impeached over his handling of the situation in Afghanistan. This despite many Republicans supporting the troop withdrawal when it was initially agreed upon by former President Trump. Joining us now, congressional reporter for Politico, Nicholas Wu. Nicholas, good morning to you. Thanks for being here and getting up early this morning. What does this flip flop say? Uh, You know, we saw it in the election. Now they're saying something different about the current state of the Republican Party. I mean, this is really a lot of the partisanship in in Congress that we're seeing happening. But it it is worth mentioning that what a lot of Republican members of Congress try to parse out here is the difference between supporting a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which which many of them uh, did support and and still uh, said they do. And, uh, you know, saying saying that they criticize the Biden administration's handling of its withdrawal from Afghanistan, which uh, they see as this botched thing, uh, perhaps worthy of impeachment. At the same time, you do have uh, this very hawkish part of the Republican Party, uh, which would perhaps have preferred uh, a a longer military presence in Afghanistan. And we're seeing some of these divisions play out right now among Republicans as they process how to move forward from uh, the uh, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal and how exactly to uh, try to um, use this to their advantage against the sitting president. You know, and generally the minority party will make gains during the midterm elections. But with this internal strife, how do you think the end of the war in Afghanistan is going to impact the midterms and and maybe even the 2024 presidential election? Right. We're certainly seeing some of these divisions play out now among Republicans as as they grapple with going as far as talking about impeaching the president over this. We saw McConnell talk to the political uh, reality of having a Democratic House and a narrowly Democratic Senate. but. Uh, it, it, you know, if, if things do flip, um, you know, there there is very much a possibility that um, that that this that this uh, these calls for impeachment be- could could become louder among Republicans. And and as and as Republicans gear up for the midterm elections, I mean, uh, although they might not campaign specifically on Afghanistan, Republicans really see this withdrawal from Afghanistan as, as further evidence of the case they're trying to build against Biden. And that that being that he he's not. Uh, up to the challenge that he's, uh, you know, not not a good manager, which is which has been the Biden administration's message all along. They were trying to say that they were um, turning the page from the Trump administration, that they were in fact 
competent managers. So we'll see exactly how this plays out. There's there's still a lot of time until the midterm elections, but um, you know we, we we can see all of this ramping up now. All right, Politico's Nicholas Wu, appreciate you waking up so early with me this morning. Thanks a lot. Still ahead, the latest on the growing concern over pediatric coronavirus cases across the country. Plus, what is next in the legal fight over the new controversial abortion law out of Texas? Those stories and so much more when we come right back. the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows. Running for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people. Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Way Too Early. Let's talk COVID. As the Delta variant becomes an increasing concern, some states are now opting to reinstate or strengthen their mask requirements. According to an NBC News count, seven states, along with Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have mask mandates for the vaccinated and unvaccinated in place right now. Another six states have mask mandates for the unvaccinated. In all, that's six more states with full mask mandates than there were at the end of July. And health officials across the country are dealing with the growing concern of pediatric COVID cases. Children who are not yet eligible for vaccination are now at a higher risk of being infected than at any other point during the pandemic. The concern obviously is especially high in areas with low vaccination rates like Louisiana. At Children's Hospital New Orleans, the intensive care unit has been absolutely packed with COVID-19 patients. According to medical staff there, the causes were often simple. Parents and family members who were unvaccinated and not wearing masks. One nurse tells the New York Times, quote, if I get hung up in the anger of it, I would walk around confronting people in Walmart here, everywhere. I can't tell them, why didn't you isolate this kid? So we just tell them your kid has COVID. It's really hard on the lungs. Your child is very sick. We'll do everything we can to get him better. In Central Texas, a school district is closing all of its schools until after the Labor Day holiday, following the deaths of two junior high teachers in the same week because of COVID-19 complications. Connolly Independent School District officials closed its five suburban Waco schools for the rest of the week after the Saturday COVID-19 death of 41-year-old Natalia Chancellor, a sixth grade social studies teacher. Her death came days after David McCormick, a 59-year-old seventh-grade social studies teacher also died of COVID-19. He had last been at the school on August 18th, which was the first day of school in the district. It's unclear whether either teacher was vaccinated, and the district does not mandate that students nor teachers wear masks. 
Meanwhile, scores of COVID-19 cases have been linked to an Illinois church camp for teenagers and an affiliated men's conference that didn't require attendees to be vaccinated, tested, or wear masks. The five-day overnight summer camp and two-day men's conference held in June led to 180 180 confirmed and probable cases across three three different states identified by contact tracers. The CDC warned that the 180 cases are likely to be an underestimate, actually, because it did not have access to camp rosters. Not all people participated in contact tracing either. No deaths have been reported from the outbreak, but five people were hospitalized. Still ahead this morning on Way Too Early, the vice president of one major league team resigns over coronavirus vaccine mandates. Plus, the U.S. Open gets postponed due to flooding rains. Sports is next. We'll be back in a moment right here on MSNBC. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Exactly 8.4 miles from where I am sitting at 1000 Vin Scully Drive. A.J. Pollock's RBI single caps the Dodgers two-run rally in the eighth inning to go ahead of the Braves and secure a series sweep with last night's 4-3 win. Paired with the Giants' loss to the Brewers, my L.A. Dodgers take a half-game lead atop the NL West standings. Meanwhile, in Anaheim, the Angels were no match for Yankee ace Garrett Cole. MLB home run leader Shohei Otani was fanned three times as part of Cole's season-high 15 strikeouts over seven different innings. Cole earns his American League-leading 14th victory. He helps New York snap a four-game skid with a 4-1 to win over L.A., or Anaheim, as the Dodger fans say. In St. Petersburg, Florida, the Red Sox outlasted the AL East-leading Rays 3-2 to despite a growing coronavirus outbreak in the Boston clubhouse. Less than a week after being called up from AAA, infielder Jairo Munoz is now the ninth team member to test positive. Washington Nationals Vice President Bob Boone is going to resign instead of complying with the team's vaccine mandate for all non-uniform employees. Boone tells the Washington Post that he and the club are parting ways as the team undergoes a staff shakeup over that vaccine requirement. According to the Post, the Nationals informed employees of the vaccine policy last month, saying they had two weeks to provide proof of at least one shot. Unvaccinated employees are now on unpaid administrative leave, and they got until September 15th to comply or have their contracts terminated. Meanwhile, in the NBA, unvaccinated players on the New York Knicks, the Brooklyn Nets, and the Golden State Warriors are going to have to get vaccinated to play in their home arenas. According to a league memo obtained by CNBC, players for those three teams would have to sit out the home games in the upcoming season under local COVID restrictions, as both New York City and San Francisco have set rules requiring proof of vaccination in order to enter indoor venues. That requirement will not apply to visiting players. Remnants of Hurricane Ida, as we talked about earlier, drenched New York City last night, affecting play at the U.S. Open in Flushing. The second round match between Kevin Anderson and Diego Schwartzman was suspended two times before eventually being moved as flooding on the court at Louis Armstrong Stadium also postponed a match featuring former women's champion Angelique Kerber, 
until today. Meanwhile, under the roof at Arthur Ashe Stadium, 2017 U.S. Open champ Sloane Stevens, now ranked 66th, needed just over one hour to complete a straight set victory against number 21, Coco Gauff. And the day turned into a practice round for defending champ Naomi Osaka, who advances to the third round after her opponent withdrew ahead of the match due to illness. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, some Trump Organization employees are set to testify before a Manhattan grand jury today as prosecutors continue their investigation into former President Trump's business affairs. The latest on those legal proceedings. But before we go to break, we always want to know, what are you doing awake? Email your reasons to waytooearly at msnbc.com, or you can tweet me at Jacob Soboroff using the hashtag waytooearly. I cannot wait to read some of those answers later on during the show. We will be right back. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Way Too Early. It is 5.30 in the morning on the East Coast, 2.30 out here on the West. I'm Jacob Soboroff. The Trump Organization's Director of Security, Matthew Calamari Jr., is expected to testify before a Manhattan grand jury as soon as this week as part of a joint investigation by the city and the state into the financials of the Trump Organization. That is according to the Wall Street Journal and confirmed to NBC News by two people familiar with the matter, Calamari Jr.'s father, Matthew Sr., is the Trump Organization's chief operating officer. The Journal is also reporting that Jeffrey McConney, a senior finance official at the Trump Organization, is expected to go before the grand jury again this week, according to people familiar with the matter. The paper writes, Mr. McConney, who previously testified before the grand jury prior to the indictments of the Trump Organization and its CFO, prepared the personal tax returns of Matthew Calamari Sr., people familiar with the matter said. Under New York state law, those subpoenaed for grand jury testimony have to testify. They can't be indicted for any conduct described in their testimony. Now to the September 18th rally. That may sound unfamiliar, but three people familiar with the intelligence gathered by federal officials tell the Associated Press that the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other far-right extremist groups are planning to attend a new rally at the U.S. Capitol on September 18th in support of the hundreds of people who have been charged in connection with January's insurrection. The officials have been discussing security plans that involve reconstructing that fence erected around the Capitol after January 6th. The decision on whether to reinstall the fence will likely be considered by the Capitol Police Board. U.S. Capitol Police told NBC News they are, quote, closely monitoring September 18th and we are planning accordingly. That statement comes after the D.C. Police Department announced last month they'll activate its entire force for the rally. Joining us now, reporter for The Washington Post, Eugene Scott. Eugene, it's really great to see you. Really, really appreciate you waking up early with me this morning. Uh, I want to ask you about this this rally on the 18th. Uh, is the is the intel here is the idea that we could see a repeat of, of what happened on January 6th or is that taking things too far? Well, it's certainly possible, and that is, you know, most people's greatest fear. We're seeing the Metropolitan Police Department uh, become more vocal and try to communicate that they will be better prepared for this rally than they were uh, for the insurrection that uh, almost overtop, overtop, toppled over our democracy. Uh, we are also seeing that there are going to be uh, lawmakers who are trying to be more vocal in terms of making it clear that 
what could happen uh, actually could end up uh, being comparable to what happened on January 6th if there aren't decisions made from Republican lawmakers to communicate very clearly to these protesters that what they need to do is be peaceful protesters instead of uh, repeat the behavior that we saw uh, that led to so much violence uh, earlier uh, in the earlier part of 2020. And that's, I guess, anything but a sure thing, given uh, how January 6th went down. I I wanted to ask you, I mentioned that the Trump organization, Eugene, um, has employees that are set to testify in front of the Manhattan district attorney. Uh, You know, what do you think is going to come from this? Well, what people will hope is more transparency about this organization that some uh, have criticized the media for not investigating more thoroughly prior to uh, the former president's original uh, campaign. Uh, But what we will see or what we are seeing already is that uh, issues with the integrity and the legality of the actions of the employees go beyond uh, the uh, most senior offices and seem to have affected uh, many or included, should I say, many individuals uh, in the lower ranks of employment there. And we should expect this to continue uh, as we move forward. I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is what impact could this have on the former president if he, in fact, decides to run again uh, for president in the future? Uh, Eugene, because I have you, I wanted to ask you about uh, Trump's view of the COVID vaccine, because I know that that is the focus uh, of your latest reporting. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you know, the last time uh, the former president spoke at a rally, he encouraged uh, vaccinations among his uh, you know, supporters, and he was booed mightily and perhaps surprisingly. But he said yesterday on a talk radio show that we reported in The Washington Post that he believes the vaccines work and that they saved lives and that uh, he knows people very close to him who have died because they were not vaccinated. And so he's going to continue to push vaccinations, especially considering how many of those who support him are uh, not vaccinated and have no plans to be, according to recent polling. The Washington Post, Eugene Scott. Eugene, it's really great to see you. And and thanks again for getting up so early. I appreciate it. Still ahead, everybody, driving goes digital. The totally different way some Americans can now carry state ID. Way too early is back in a moment right here on MSNBC. Time now for something totally different, ladies and gentlemen. Several major motion picture premieres have been delayed due to the COVID surge caused by the Delta variant. Paramount announced the two Tom Cruise-led films are now going to be released next year. Top Gun Maverick will now premiere May 27th, 2022, while Mission Impossible 7 will debut next September. The studios also pushed back the latest installment of Johnny Knoxville's shock comedy franchise, Jackass Forever, to next year, for those of you wondering. These films mark the first late 2021 release date shuffle as the country's COVID cases remain steady. The case rates had a significant impact on consumer confidence in returning to the movies, according to a study conducted by the National Research Group. Apple has announced that the iPhone and Apple Watch users in eight different states will be able to keep a digital version of their driver's license or state ID documents on their devices. Arizona and Georgia are going to be the first states to test out the new features, followed by Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah. Apple said the information will be encrypted for protection and for privacy. The TSA is even going to accept the digital IDs at checkpoints at certain participating airports. Like so many artists, Elton John used the pandemic stay-at-home orders to create new music. And now the legendary singer is releasing an entire new album. 
It is called The Lockdown Sessions, and it's a collection of 16 different songs featuring big-name artists from all genres. Miley Cyrus, Lil Nas X, Eddie Vedder, Stevie Wonder, and Stevie Nicks are among those featured. The artists recorded tracks remotely from uh, one and another, sometimes in person, with safety precautions in place. And in an announcement on Instagram, Elton John writes, quote, I have ended with a selection of really interesting and diverse stuff that was completely different to anything I'm known for, stuff that took me out of my comfort zone into completely new territory. The lockdown sessions will be released October 22nd. And it is migration season for southern right whales. I'm sure you knew that. And those in Argentine Patagonia are getting up close and personal with the large creatures. New incredible, incredible drone footage seen here shows a curious whale gently pushing a woman on a paddleboard off the coast of Puerto Madryn. Who hasn't had that happen? Every year, hundreds of southern right whales arrive near the city shores to mate or to have their calves. More than 1,600 have come this year so far. Still ahead, much more serious news. The Supreme Court is allowing the state of Texas to enforce a near total ban on abortion. What that means for the future of Roe versus Wade. And as we go to break a look at this date in history, 16 years ago, a National Guard convoy packed with food, water, and medicine rolled into New Orleans four days after Hurricane Katrina. Why weren't more National Guard troops sent in sooner to provide aid and security? 30% of the U.S. troops in Iraq are from the National Guard, 2,700 including these from Louisiana. Why are they halfway around the world when they could be here? Overnight, the Supreme Court declined to block a law in Texas that prohibits abortions after roughly six weeks, less than one day after it took effect, and became the most restrictive abortion measure in the United States. The vote was five to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts dissenting alongside three liberal justices. The conservative justices argued the abortion providers challenging the law have essentially not made their case yet adding that the ruling wasn't made on the constitutionality of the law and does not limit proper challenges to it. NBC News correspondent Katie Beck has more on what it means for women in Texas. Rage in Texas. It's going to be nearly impossible for folks to access the care that they need. Protest over what is now the most restrictive abortion law in the country, going into effect after the U.S. Supreme Court did not act on opponents' request to block it. Bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. Passed by the legislature in May, it forbids abortion in Texas after cardiac activity is detected, typically around six weeks before many women know they're pregnant. Instead of state officials enforcing the law, it allows individuals to take legal action, permitted to sue any person who might have helped someone get an abortion after six weeks. Providers, relatives, even a taxi driver can face damages up to $10,000. It is a very sad day. Amy Hagstrom-Miller oversees four abortion clinics in Texas, which are complying with the new law, already turning large numbers of women away. These politicians don't hear the anguish um, from the patients. They don't hear these patients' stories about why they need access to safe abortion today. Opponents of abortion rights call the new law incredible progress, 
clearing the way for similar restrictions. What we hope is in the future is that uh, abortion limits, uh, consensus on abortion will be allowed to make their way into the law. That was NBC's Katie Beck reporting. Joining us now, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and an MSNBC legal analyst, Joyce Vance. Joyce, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for getting up early uh, to talk to me. You're exactly the person I wanted to talk to about this. Um, tell, tell me if I have this right, Joyce. An injunction is basically frequently denied based on the court's belief that the plaintiffs are not likely to win on the merits uh, of the case. But in this case, the court directly said it wasn't deciding on the merits of the challenge of the law. So what do we do? How do we read sort of the tea leaves on the future of abortion as a constitutional right, given what, what's gone down over the couple, course of the last couple of days? Well, the top headline, uh, top line headline here has to be that Roe versus Wade has come to the end of its life, whether the court actually says that here or says it next year in the Mississippi case, that conclusion seems to be foregone. And this is an unusual ruling by the Supreme Court. They almost seem to say in this two-page unsigned opinion by the majority that because the Texas law is procedurally so complex and because it relies on private individuals for enforcement, that the court lacks the ability, in essence, to enjoin the law from going into effect. It's a very unusual and in many ways disappointing opinion. You, I saw your tweet, uh, I think it was last night, uh, that you said Roe isn't just dead in Texas, that women in conservative states are, are right not to feel safe because states like Alabama will, here's what you said, jump on the Texas bandwagon. Can you talk a little bit more, Joyce, about what you mean by that? Texas is now a roadmap. Any state where the legislature chooses to adopt a, a statute that's modeled on the Texas statute now can live with, with the certainty that the Supreme Court, a majority of that court, will permit the law to go into effect. It's important to note that these are heartbeat statutes. They prohibit abortion after a heartbeat, roughly six weeks, a point at which most women aren't even aware that they're pregnant. So this would tend to completely devalue the promise of Roe that women could have control over their own bodies and although the court seems to leave this opening where they say, well, we haven't really reversed Roe, we haven't considered the substance of the issue, they have permitted this law to go into effect with their imprimatur on it. That's an invitation for any other state to do the same. I wonder just what your reaction, I was listening to Rachel last night talk about sort of the practical implications of this on the ground. You have physicians uh, in clinics in Texas sort of rushing to get these procedures done at the last minute, um, not even legally, Joyce, but just hearing what's going on on the ground. Um, I, I just wonder what your reaction is. I'm old enough that I remember when Roe became the law in this country, and it seemed like the sort of genuine advancement for women in America that couldn't be undone. It opened up all sorts of other freedoms and a sense of freedom, a sense that women uh, no longer needed someone else's approval for their conduct and, and controlled their own fates and their own bodies. This action really signifies a remarkable backward step that I think people feared but didn't believe would actually happen. Ultimately, it means that elections have consequences and women will have to go through that same fight that people in my generation and the generation ahead of mine went if they want to reclaim a place of equality in society. Joyce, there, you know, I mean, this is why I wanted to speak to you today. There, there are 
de- many, many devastated people out there who are wondering legally, um, what is next? What is going to happen? Um, and, and they're turning to you um, to ask that question online. I've been seeing people ask. So, so let me pose it to you on the air. Where do we go from here? What happens next? Well, legally, the next thing that will happen is the Mississippi case that's pending in front of the Supreme Court next term, which gives the court the option if it chooses to completely overrule Roe. Um, some folks believe that the court will do that. Other folks believe that, that the court will strip and, and gut Roe without formally reversing it. Ultimately, though, the answer here is that people who wish to engage in activism on behalf of women and their ability to make their own choices will have to try to turn to legislatures. So if there's any silver lining here in Jacob, it's tough to see it right now. It's the fact that this may uh, lead to more activism, to more people engaging civically and understanding that courts are one of the consequences of elections. All right, Joyce Vance, uh, again, thanks for getting up so early. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, and I'll talk to you soon. And for all of you watching earlier in the show, we asked, what are you doing awake? Probably you wanted to see Joyce Vance. Um, but some other folks uh, told us this. Susie writes, kicking off the workday early so I can start the weekend early. The weekend early. Susie, it is Thursday. Uh, Christy, Christy shared this photo. This one woke me at 4 a.m. He sleeps now, um, but I am wide awake. Bridget tweeted this. It's my 50th birthday and I am too excited to sleep. Bridget, happy birthday. Uh, Alan emails, checking if the sump pump is still kicking on every 10 seconds like it was all day uh, yesterday. I hope everybody's basements are doing okay. And Bert writes this, raining pretty hard here in Maine, but Leonard never misses an episode of Way Too Early. What's up, Leonard? How you doing, buddy? Uh, coming up next, guys, a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And after that, coming up on Morning Joe, before joining the Biden administration, Cedric Richmond represented Louisiana in Congress. We'll talk about recovery efforts from Hurricane Ida and so much more when he joins the conversation. And also, former congressman and veteran of the war in Afghanistan, Max Rose, will join the conversation. Staten Island one and only. Morning Joe is just moments away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.